Well, welcome once again to our Graceway Baptist Church Sunday School Hour. And we're so glad that you could uh, join us for this. And hopefully these are helpful and encouraging. And uh, for teachers, we pray that the Lord uses this to bring clarity and uh, maybe cut down a little bit on some of your study time and uh, get you excited about Sunday. And then for those of you who are watching this just to keep up with your Sunday school class, that's a, that's a great thing and I certainly commend you for that. So October the 1st, 2023 is what we have. Maybe it'll be a little cooler by then. Summer doesn't quite want to go away, <clears throat> does it? But when has that ever been a strange thing in Oklahoma? Hangs on. We're talking about symbols that are contained in the law itself and this is part two. And we saw where the Apostle Paul says, oh, you guys love the law so much? Well, let's look at the law. And they went back to the book of Genesis, which is a book of the portion of scripture called the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it. And uh, then he takes a story of Abraham and Sarah. And as you know, the uh, promise was that Abraham would be the one blessed by God. In fact, God even said that through your descendants, all the world will be blessed. Only one problem with that, Abraham didn't have any descendants. Kind of hard to do that. So Abraham and Sarah are talking about it. And Sarah goes, you know, I've got this young Egyptian uh, slave here. And uh, why don't you let her be the mother of uh, one of your children? And uh, you, you know what she was really giving up and what she was having him do. And, uh, and he did it, strangely enough. You know, the people in the Bible, one of the things that you ought to appreciate about them is not when you look back and say, well, how come they did that if they're so godly? I think the thing we ought to look at is, man, they're just like us. They mess up all the time and God uses flawed, messed up people and works with them and forgives them and reestablishes them. Think about the apostle Peter after his denial and think about Jonah after he, you know, goes the opposite direction instead of going to Nineveh like he was supposed to. I mean, everybody in the Bible, think about King David and those kind of things. I think what we ought to do is look at them and, and instead of saying, boy, look at what a rotten person, I think maybe we ought to say, what a great God. <clears throat> Abraham had his flaws. And so he and Sarah are going to try to help God out because you can't have God be embarrassed, can you? And um, so Ishmael is born and Ishmael's kind of a problem from day one because he doesn't have the blessing of God and he's not the one that's going to carry the covenant <clears throat> to all of the earth. So then uh, there are some people that come to visit Abraham and they happen to be angels and a Abraham throws a barbecue for them. And then one of the angels, I think it was Jesus, says to them, you know, a year from now, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughed. She thought that was uh, just unbelievable, right? Well, I would too, most likely. And probably so would you. And uh, yet they do have this child. And it's a child that is brought about uh, in a woman's womb that was well after menopause, well after her childbearing years. And so uh, this child is born. And so Abraham now has gone from zero sons to two sons by two different women. And one, Paul says, is a picture of 
the Judaizers. All of it's done in the flesh. It's accomplished by man. And it, it's not anything that God does. And guess who that is? Well, that's, uh, he says, Mount Sinai, the temple in Jerusalem are all symbolized by Ishmael at this point because people are trusting in the law to save them and there's uh, no way that that can do it. Now remember, again, the law, we've talked about this about every week, the law can reveal sin, but it cannot fix the sin problem. It cannot justify, it cannot cleanse, it cannot make right. That only happens by a supernatural work of God by grace through faith. And God did that by bringing along a little boy named Isaac. And Isaac was born because God wanted him to be born. That was the child of the covenant, the child of the promise, and not the child that was brought about by human instrumentality or anything like that. So those two things symbolize salvation by grace versus salvation by works. And the two just don't mix. They don't get along well. And you can't have a little bit of each. It's either one or the other. And so uh, if salvation is only complete, as the Judaizers say, by the act of circumcision, well, then uh, grace has nothing to do with that. It's all of works, and uh, the works are what really matters, because if you have all of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but no circumcision, well, you can't be saved. Remember that? And uh, then on the other hand, if it is all done by Christ, then why would you trust in circumcision? You're going to Ishmael instead of Isaac, Paul said. So... That's uh, where we're headed with all of this. We're looking in Galatians 4, 27 through 31 as we uh, finish this up. Now, um, how do we know that we have a right to look at this and to say that those of us who trust Christ alone for our salvation, we're symbolized by Isaac and everyone who doesn't is by Ishmael. I mean, after all, the Muslims take this same story and they say, no, actually, uh, it, it was uh, Ishmael that was the child of a promise. That's who God or Allah really wanted. And uh, later on, when Isaac is sacrificed on uh, Mount Moriah, the Muslims say, no, that was, that was Ishmael. I mean, they're all about Ishmael, the Arab side of all of this. Well, how do we know who's right and who's wrong? Because one of the things we do sometimes in our Sunday school or in our small group Bible study or something like that, we might say something like, uh, okay, we're going to read this passage of scripture. Now, what does that mean to you? That's really not a good question to ask. That's a, that's a dumb question to ask, okay? Because it doesn't matter what it means to you. Now, we'll get to application in a little bit. You're going to have to do something with the scripture, but the very first thing to ask is, what does the scripture mean? Now, to help us focus in on that, we have to do two things. Number one, we go, what did the author of this book, what did the writer mean when he wrote these words? Now, that'll give us a clue. You know, you, uh, maybe you've gotten a text sometime and you read it and you go, wait a minute. What did they mean by that? I think I might have just been insulted. What do they mean by that? And so you have to do a little investigation to find out. And then maybe you find out, oh, no, they didn't mean anything bad 
by that at all. It's just the way that I read it. What it meant to me was an insult. What the person meant was maybe even something complimentary. Well, we have to do the same thing with the Bible. What did Paul mean when he wrote this? What did Paul mean? And then the second thing we ask is, what did the original audience understand it to mean? And so uh, if we look at the book of Galatians, we have to understand what, what Paul was meaning because he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we better figure out what Paul meant. And then we need to, to kind of double check ourselves, find out what the uh, original audience would understand it to mean. Because language changes over time and thoughts and ideas change over time. We live in a very, very different culture than the Galatians lived in, in the Roman Empire back in those days. A very different culture than first century Jews in Jerusalem would live in. So we've got to go back and uh, we've got to, that's why we look occasionally at the original language. What did that word mean back then? It might mean something different now, but that's not the big deal. What did it mean then? How did they understand it? And then once we get that, then we can bring it into our life and bring it into our time. We cross the bridge of culture. We cross the bridge of language. We cross those bridges and bring it all up to date. So why would we take this and say, ah, I'm Isaac just because we like him best? Or what is it that we're looking for? And there's a clue here as we read the text that tells us exactly how we are supposed to um, apply this, okay? So let's uh, go ahead and let's take a look at the passage, and we want to take it in its context, asking the question, what did this mean when it was written? Moses wrote Genesis, and uh, Paul wrote Galatians. So we've got two different people, two different backgrounds, two different uh, situations in their life, I mean, Moses raised in Egypt in Pharaoh's court uh, to a bunch of people who were slaves. He's going to bring them out. Well, Paul, a little bit different, right? A little bit more modern uh, when you put it all together. And so we've got to try to understand it through them. And the key verse is going to be found down in chapter 4, verse 28. Now, we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. Okay, so let's go back and let's start reading at 27, knowing that Isaac is the one that Paul said, this is where you're supposed to look and what you're supposed to be like. Okay, Galatians 4, 27. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate, has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. So we bring that up to date, right? Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman, that Hagar, and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, 
but of the free. Now let's see if we can unpack this a little bit and uh, understand this a little more clearly. Uh, number one, notice we are born, we are, pardon me, almost did a heresy here. We are not born of natural means. If there's anything clear in scripture is we do not, we cannot save ourselves. It's not like we have an option there because, uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll do it my way and you do it God's way. We don't have an option because our way doesn't work. We cannot save ourselves. It has to be the work of God. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit because everything we do is tainted by sin. Now, uh, he illustrates this in verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren. Now, okay, we've got to go back and we've got to look back in the days uh, when all of this was written. And you remember as you study your Old Testament, a woman that could not have a child uh, was considered disgraced, maybe cursed, abandoned by God, or something, something was wrong if they couldn't have a, a child. Now, we look at that and we go, well, that's terrible and everything. Well, we've got to be careful. We cannot impose 21st century standards on a culture uh, back then. Now, back in those days when they are, uh, when you're Abraham, when you're in his shoes and you're supposed to be the father of descendants that outnumber the sands of the sea and are numbered like the stars of the heavens. Now, how are you going to do that if your wife can't bear a child? And so um, Paul is saying here, well, go ahead and rejoice. Who's the barren one here? Well, it's Sarah. It's not Hagar. It's Sarah. It's the good woman. It's the wife of Abraham. It's the one who is involved in the covenant, who is the mother of all of the Jewish people that have ever lived. They all have her and Abraham's DNA and all of that. And here's a promise. God says, you're going to be the father of many. And then later, the father of many nations. Now, how are we going to do that? My wife cannot bear children. And so there was a frustration in all of that as to how are we going to do what God wants us to do? And are the promises of God true when we don't have this a situation where the wife is, is fertile and able to conceive and to bear children. And then Paul has the audacity to say, go ahead and rejoice, you barren one. Well, see, Sarah wasn't doing that. She felt inadequate. She felt like she was, um, you know, not, not holding up her end of the, of the deal, of the bargain, so to speak. She felt like she was completely inadequate. She felt like she was a hindrance to Abraham and not a help. So then she says, well, here, take my slave and, you know, see what happens there. And yet that was not in the plan of God. That was a sinful, selfish act. And uh, we always get in trouble when we try to help God out. God knows what he's doing and he knows what his uh, promise is. So much so that if God says the barren woman is going to have a child, go ahead and start making the birthday cake. Go ahead and start decorating the nursery. Why? Because it's as good as done if God says to do this. So this is not putting down anybody who uh, is unable to have children. In fact, interestingly enough, when you read back through the book of Genesis and things, the most godly women of all seem to have trouble having children. And here they are trying to populate a nation and they, and they can't seem to have children. Then you have others, uh, think of Leah and Rachel, Ra uh, Jacob's wives, 
And uh, man, you know, Leah just has kid after kid after kid. She could have had a TV show, couldn't she? And uh, like the Duggars. And uh, yet Rachel just is dying for a child because she's the one that Jacob really loved. And that's where the promise is going to come through. And uh, so this is interesting. So God says, you might as well go ahead and rejoice because it's as good as done because this is the promise of God. So that's what that means. Uh, Rejoice you who do not bear, break forth and shout. Uh, you who do not uh, are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than the one who has a husband. In other words, God's going to take care of all of this and do exactly what he said to do. Now, remember this, looking at the bullet par- uh, points here, our life apart from Christ is certainly barren. I mean, there's a sense to where we see ourselves as being barren because John 15, 15 Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. Well, I wish uh, Abraham and Sarah had understood that. We'd have a different story and you wouldn't have the Arab-Israeli conflict going on in the Middle East now because the sons of Isaac and the, de- uh, the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of uh, Ishmael, they still don't like each other and they still don't get along. And by the way, Isaac and Ishmael didn't like each other either. That's why they wanted to cast out the bondwoman. And so um, we need to remember that the bearing can rejoice before they see fulfillment. Why? Because of the promises of God. Now, unfortunately, they didn't do that. Sarah laughed in Genesis chapter 18, verses 12 through 15. And Sarah suggested a solution in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And this is just kind of messing up the picture. God had a picture that he wanted to put out here about our salvation. And Sarah keeps, you know, like going up to a poster and drawing a mustache on it. She keeps kind of messing with it. And notice that everything about our salvation is uh, supernatural. And that's why Paul makes a comparison. It's not anything except the supernatural work of God. That's why we're saved. And it's all of God and completely of God. And we are the children of faith and the children of promise. Okay. Number two, God gave the promise and God himself fulfilled his promise. And you kind of get the idea when you look at Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, we believe the promises of God, but we've got to make them come about. And a lot of people believe that about salvation, too. Oh, yeah, God saves if we will. And then they put a human work in there. If we'll be baptized, if we'll keep the sacraments of the church, if we'll be circumcised, if we will, you know, name it, whatever it will be. So the problem comes about in that we think that when God makes a problem, a promise, once he establishes it and says the promise, and then he goes back, now make sure you get that done. But you look through the scripture, does that ever take place? Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. And that's been the picture all the way through. God didn't need Adam and Eve. God didn't need Abraham. God didn't need you or me or anyone else 
to do his will. He didn't say, here's what I want to do. Now get it done and do your best. He's not like a CEO at a staff meeting that uh, just starts handing out assignments. What he is doing here is saying and showing us as we read through the Bible, whether the people of God are right or whether they're wrong, whether they're obedient or disobedient, whether they are godly or ungodly, God's will is always done because he sees to it. So God promises Abraham, in you all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then what happens to Abraham's descendants? They end up in Egypt and they end up as slaves. Oh, God failed. Somebody's going to have to fix this. Well, nobody could ever fix it. Moses tried to fix it on his own when he killed the Egyptian, but that didn't work out well, did it? He had to run for his life and he ends up in the backside of the desert. But that's about the time God could use him. And it's about the time we're at our worst. It's about the time we have blown it. It's about the time we've given up on all of it. And God says, well, good, finally, now I'll do something. And God has always taken care of his people. He has always fulfilled his promises. And he does it without us. And he does it in spite of us, let's say. That seems to be the picture in the uh, Old Testament particularly, but also in the New. So we, according to verse 28, we're Isaac. And we're the children of the promise. Now the promise was given before the foundation of the world. I love to look at this and think about uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where John looks and he said, I saw a lamb slain, as it were, from the foundation of the world. In other words, God did not just, when Adam and Eve sinned, go, oh, I've got to do something. I think I'll, I think I'll send my son. How would that work? No, this was already in place. It was already a part of the plan before the foundation of the world. Got to get that in your head. And it was also a promise given at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Yeah, Eve, you've blown it, and the serpent is the one who tempted you. But hey, serpent, not only is there a curse on you, but the seed of woman, that's a strange thing. I think it makes reference to the virgin birth. The seed of woman, uh, you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. It's a death-dealing blow. So all the way back at the fall, God knew exactly what he was going to do because this is the plan all along. It's fulfilled by Jesus at Calvary, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, what, where was the forgiveness? With the shedding of his blood. Where did he shed his blood? On the cross. And that's where he said, it is finished. So there's a sense to where with the Father I was saved before the foundation of the world. With Christ I was saved as soon as he finished paying for my sins on the cross of Calvary. But the Holy Spirit, we've got to get the Trinity here, is involved as well. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I guess I could say, saved with the Father before the foundation of the world, saved with Christ at the cross when he finished his work and paid for my sin, and saved according to the Holy Spirit in 1982 when I received the Spirit of God and he gave me faith 
to believe in him. And I cried out, Abba, Father. Okay? So number three, notice that Paul says, unbelievers, legalists, self-righteous, works-based people, they persecute us. Now, wouldn't you think we could all just get along? I mean, this world that we live in talks a lot about tolerance. Tolerance, we got to tolerate everybody. We should tolerate everybody, but they won't tolerate anything that doesn't agree with them or anyone that doesn't agree with them. That, that goes way, way back. Ishmael was just a thorn in Isaac's side, so much so that Sarah said, Abe, we got to do something about this. This is our child of promise. We've got to protect him. And Paul uses it as an illustration to say, the legalists, the self-righteous, the Ishmaelites, we might say, whatever they're called now, they are always going to persecute the children of God. In this world, Jesus said, you'll have tribulation. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. And the only victory that we have is in Jesus. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so Paul looked at this and he goes, this is nothing new. Why are these people coming after you? Because they would claim to be the children of Isaac because they're Jews after all. And physically they were, but spiritually they were Ishmaelites. Well, that, that'll get you stoned in a hurry back then, won't it? And uh, he said, they're the ones that are taking you back to the law, to human effort, and all of that, just like uh, Abraham and Hagar. And that's not the plan. That's not the purpose of God in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, what do they do about it? They attack. What do they do? They put down. What do they do? They try to discredit. And this is what they're doing to Paul. And this is what they're doing to the Galatian believers who are true believers. They're persecuting them. They cannot let it stand. They cannot stomach it, just like Ishmael was with um, Isaac. And so uh, now we have a spiritual enemy, of course. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Jesus spoke of this in John 10, 10. The thief, meaning the devil, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they have, may have it more abundantly. And Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, where are we in all of this? Well, before we're saved, we're Ephesians chapter 2. We have this enemy who's like a lion, the one who is like the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We have this one who is our ultimate adversary. And what do we do about it? Well, then according to Ephesians 2, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, because you didn't have a choice, according to the uh, course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now listen to this. The spirit who now works in the sons of 
of disobedience. So they hate us. And they always have and they always will because we have something that they don't have. We have the blessing and the favor of God. And the people in this world, they may not care about that or see anything, but boy, the demons of hell do and you are marked because they cannot stand you because you represent everything that they lost. Did you know that the demons of hell and the devil and himself used to be in heaven? And then there was a rebellion against God to overthrow him. And when they did that, then they were cast out of heaven. They can never go back, folks. But you're on your way. And when you die absent from the body, present with the Lord, and they despise you and they hate you just like Ishmael hated Isaac. Always been that way, always will be that way. And that's the reason why. And number four, notice that grace and legalism cannot exist in the same family. See, it's going to be one way or another. And the reason Paul is concerned about this is because Isaac and Ishmael could not get along. And so the bondwoman with her child was cast out of the family. He was not going to be someone who would inherit the, uh, uh, the blessing of Abraham and the riches of Abraham. That was for the child of promise. And that's the way it is now. This world is not going to inherit the things of God. They're not going to inherit eternal life unless they become a child of promise through faith, unless they trust Christ as their Savior and Lord. Then they change. They're made a new creature in Christ. They're cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. They're a part of the family of God, and they're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There has to be that transformation, being born again, Jesus said, to Nicodemus. But the world in general is not going to do that. They're not even going to be interested in it. And they hate everything that you have because of the spirit that works in them. See, again, the physical people are not our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, the spiritually dead people of this world, according to Ephesians 2, hates you and everything about you and everything about our church and everything about our message. They hate all of that. And so what do they do? They try to persecute. They harass. They discredit. They laugh at. All of those kind of things. And in some cases, they kill. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So one necessarily cancels out the other. One necessarily cancels out the other. So if you do everything right, but you've never been circumcised, the Judaizer go, sorry, you fell short. You fell short. So in other words, what really matters is not the death of Christ, but the circumcision. You see how that works with the two? How on the other hand, if you are trusting in Christ and he is the full payment for your sins, then who cares whether you're circumcised or not? You're in and you are free and you are a part of the family of God, not based on anything you've done, but what Christ did for you. And those two things are oil and water, they're fire and ice, and they just don't go together. So any quote-unquote gospel that adds, to, uh, that adds works either to get saved 
or to remain saved must be rejected. Read the first verse in the book of Jude. We are kept not by our works, not by our baptism, not by our good deeds. We're kept by Christ. And remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, saved by grace through faith that's not even of us. But then because of that, because we're his workmanship, we do good works, not to get saved, not to maintain our salvation, but because we have been saved. This is the key. And so the conclusion, we've got to remember this is more serious than most people think. It's not just a little disagreement. You can't look at this and say, Paul and, and Judaizers, can't we just all get along and work it out? I mean, you're not really that far apart, are you? Well, look at Romans chapter 11, verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, the work is no longer work. You get what he's saying there? He's saying it's one or the other. It's not a mixture of both. It's one or the other. You're either in or you're out. You're either on the work side or the grace side. And if you're on the work side in any degree, you're going to hell. Romans chapter 11, verse 6 in the Amplified puts it like this. But if it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It would not be a gift, but a reward for works. Salvation is not a reward for our works. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so when we look at this last part of that story, you and I are in the Isaac camp. We're symbolized by Isaac, the child of promise, and uh, we are not looking and saying, this is something that we cooperated with God and it all happened. No, this is all of God. So whenever you think about the fact that you were saved, whenever you think about the fact that you understand one iota of scripture, whenever you think about the fact that you have a heart to worship God, to love God, to serve God, not perfectly, of course, but that's where your desires lie, then you realize that didn't come from you. And it didn't come from your mama and daddy. And it didn't come from the church even. It wasn't that you were raised in church and coloring on the pews and all that kind of stuff when you were little. No, you've got to be transformed. You must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus. And you don't ever birth yourself, do you? Get that in mind. And so Paul is using that as an illustration of who we are, children of promise. We don't need anything in addition to faith in Christ, and we can't take anything away from it either. We are complete in Him, lacking nothing, it said in another verse of Scripture. So, child of God, rejoice and rest in the Lord and don't look around at everything else that you think you ought to do or that other people say you ought to do. Everything goes back to Jesus. It's all of him, and he saves us, and he keeps us, and we rest in him. Isn't that good news? So if you have doubts about your salvation, read 1 John, and go back and ask the, uh, the Lord, am I your child? He, he'll make it clear to you. 
And if you are his child, then rest in that and don't let people rattle you or shake you up with that. Well, our time's gone and I've enjoyed being with you today. I hope it's been a blessing to you and praise the Lord for the security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for people like Paul who under the inspiration of the Spirit made it crystal clear for us. Thank you for your time. God bless you and we'll see you next week, Lord willing.